Welcome, welcome, welcome to the fifth official episode of Let's Talk About Gen Z on WNYU Radio. I'm your host, Ella Traeger, and today we have a very wise Gen Z writer on the show. I am so excited to introduce our special guest, Jane Marie R.A. Woohoo! <laughs> she studied comparative literature and Arabic at Emory University, where she published three times, but really grew into herself as a writer during the peak of the pandemic. Her newest book, Screens and the Ego, A Meditation on Gen Z, is coming in the summer of 2023 to Amazon and Audible and in some local bookstores where you'll certainly catch my friends and me buying every single copy available because she truly is wise beyond her years and has a fascinating take on Gen Z that I think we can all learn a lot from. It was such a pleasure speaking with her and I can't wait for you all to hear everything that she has to say. So without further ado, please welcome Jane Marie. Marie, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Talk About Gen Z. I and many of our listeners, however many of them there are, are excited to have you on. This is really awesome. So thank you. Thank you. I'm in awe that you've written this book at this <laughs> age, you know, fresh out of fresh out of the oven, fresh out of college. This is so amazing. So first and most importantly, tell us your book spiel, the name of your book, a little bit about it. What inspired you to write it? All that good stuff. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be on this podcast. Um, My book is called Screens and the Ego, A Meditation on Gen Z. And it's a collection of short stories that um, take you through what it's like to be socialized on the internet or um, what is the impact of replacing soul language and religious language with emotion language. Um, because, you know, before people had words like depression and PTSD, for example, they used words like mourning and lamentation. And they expressed their deepest, like, like their deepest internal experiences within a religious framework. And as society has become more secularized over the past 80 years, um, and they've been casting off religion, we've been casting off the institution of religion, we've been also like losing the concept of the soul if that makes sense Mm. and when you lose the concept of the soul you still have to be able to talk about your emotions so we've developed an entirely new vocabulary for um what we're going through and it's so based in like this hardcore scientific method of like like identifying disorders and um like talking about like, oh, you have low self-esteem, so you should like uh, prioritize yourself. And that way you'll be able to like counteract the low self-esteem, like in the same way that you dilute acid in water. And um, basically the, the emotional drive of me writing these stories is me just trying to say like, hey, you know, like maybe, maybe the human soul was a pretty good framework for talking about like the most important stuff. And maybe we're losing something significant as we lose the concept of the soul. Mm. That concept of losing the soul is so striking to me and Mm -hmm. something that I'm not going to stop thinking about for the next few days, (laughs) which is 
good, maybe not good because I'm going to go into an existential crisis, but I think you're totally (laughs) right. And I think that idea of replacing soul language with emotion language can be really detrimental. Mm -hmm. Totally. Another thing I want to talk about, something you discuss in your book, is a different pivotal shift in Gen Z's consciousness, and that is a lack of pullback. So I don't want to butcher your definition of pullback. I think it's a really unique idea. So would you mind explaining to us a little bit about what pullback means to you um, or means in the book? What inspired this idea of pullback? Yeah, totally. So the way that I use pullback is like, if a person has a different idea or an extreme idea, most of the time when they're in a context of like other people and they have a family and friends, they will talk about that idea with their family and friends and their family and friends will like ask them questions about it or make them defend it or um, poke holes in it. And in the process of sharing this idea with other people, it like it, it gets pulled back or it gets um like pulled towards the norm so that the idea can be understood in a group. But because the internet is so good at giving us content that we already want to watch, we don't have that socialization which stops us from thinking what we've already thought. And that's manifested most obviously in the political polarization going on in America. But it's not just about politics. It's also about like like um, frames of reference in like your personal life or frames of reference in um, like the media you watch or, um, you know, there's an awful lot of people, for example, who are really into anime and I'm not into anime, but um, (laughs) my, uh, my fiance's younger sister is really into anime. And when I talk to her about stories and writing, it's difficult for me to have a conversation with her at all because her entire like concept of a story is so attached to the way that like anime presents stories that it's almost like it it, like I'm talking past her in a way that's like in a way that's just like are we from a different planet we're not we're American it's just that we're both Gen Z and Mm -hmm. she is consumed she's immersed in media that I don't watch can I ask how how old is your fiance's niece yeah. So it's actually his little sister. I'm, I'm oh. don't know if I said niece, but I'm sorry about that. I uh, yeah, could be totally so she's, wrong. <laughs> she's 19. Oh, wow. You see, I, when you were telling that story, I was thinking that she was maybe like three or five <laughs> or something. Um, <laughs> because I think in that case, it makes sense to sort of frame your surroundings and your life in the context of whatever <laughs> you're consuming. Mm-hmm. But, but wow. Yeah, I you know what I think that you really hit something pivotal, and that is the um the delay of social development that's associated with being socialized on the internet. You know, like right. um I'll tell my mom stories about like for example when I was uh working in college, there was this one coworker who was like really neurotic about the rules, and so she annoyed some other coworkers, and those other coworkers who were twenty two years old made a group chat called like screw this person and they used her actual name and they made a group chat you know it only existed to complain and ostracize this one person 
And I told my mom about it and she was like, look, I actually think that if you have four like 22 year old coworkers in participating in that group chat, like that's that's reflective of your generation. Cause my mom would expect like 12 year old girls to do that, but not 22 year olds. Like that's, that is really, really late to right. understand that you shouldn't do that. And I think that that's kind of like a theme throughout Gen Z. What do you think? You're so right. I do find myself in a lot of instances saying, "Ugh, that's so middle school or, "Ugh, that's so, <laughs> that's so immature. <laughs> And yeah. another thing I say is, who raised these people? What, like, <laughs> what is going on? Why do we, why do people in our generation feel like they can gang up in this mean girl-esque way? Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I, I guess who raised these people, the answer to that is society, of course, but a very specific kind of society that has shaped us in a way to be hyper individualized and and act in a way that doesn't see that mm-hmm. as such a problem. Yeah, totally. That's exactly right. And and the thing is is that they didn't see it as a problem. Like they they didn't have the self-awareness or the consciousness to recognize that that was an issue. And yeah, totally. that comes from extreme myopticism. Mm. Like mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that word means? Myopticism? Yeah. yeah. Um, my opticism is like um, only thinking about something one way, like right. like only only interpreting a series of actions in one way, or like if someone is like really really particular in in the way that they, I don't know. When I think of a myopic person, I think of a kind of neurotic person, but I'm not sure if that's my thinking or if that's actually what the word means. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That documentary, The Social Dilemma, that's what it's called, The Social Dilemma. Oh, yeah. I think speaks to this same point, speaks to the fact that social media and artificial intelligence is obviously not really helping us to combat this issue, but rather (laughs) reinforce it and enhance it to the extreme because we're just being fed everything that we already know and that we want to see and that's going to further our polarized beliefs, nothing that's going to sort of like allow us to see the other side which mm-hmm. can be really problematic. Yeah, totally. Um, that was a great documentary and it really hit on a major aspect of what's going on in 2020, but also what being a child in that culture does to your psyche. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. So another major topic in addition to that that I want to discuss with you briefly is this idea of defining freedom. So there's one short story in your book that discusses how definitions of freedom have sort of changed over time. So Mm -hmm. what is your take on, tell us a little bit about your take on freedom versus self-indulgence and how this plays a role in the Gen Z consciousness. Yeah, totally. So right now on Google, if you Google, what is the definition of freedom? It will say like, your ability to do what you want without restraint. And a lot of people have interpreted that to mean um, limitless self-indulgence. And like, that means like, oh, 
it, it's a free country. I, I'm going to watch Netflix if I want to, or it's a free country. I'm, I'm only going to do a job that makes me happy. And that's, that's really not what the history of Western civilization was thinking of when they thought of freedom. So I think that one of the major founding principles of all Abrahamic faiths is this idea that God cares a lot about if you behave right or wrong. Like God cares a lot about it. And if you behave wrong, you've put yourself wrong with God. So um, that idea to me was pretty much only conveyed through my Arab grandma because she was still operating outside of a Western cultural context. But to me, when I was growing up, the idea of being ethical was like completely unrelated to the idea of having good self-esteem. If I was feeling bad about myself, I would think to myself like, oh, maybe I should go like buy a burrito and watch Netflix. So that's the way that I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. That's the way that I, uh, or maybe I should go take a bubble bath or something like that. Right. But the thing that I lost when I was ignoring my problem was that I, uh, I actually did not treat people well sometimes. And when you are not good to other people, it, it's really hard to convince yourself that you're good enough when you're not, you know? Like you have to actively lie to yourself if you're telling yourself that you're a good person when you're not a good person. And that's one thing that my grandma used to tell me a lot. Like, if you want to respect yourself, you have to act like a respectable person. I really saw that when I was working at this facility for teenage female wards of the state whose behavior was too extreme for foster care placement. So like something heinous would happen to a girl and then she would get put in foster care. And most of the time, foster parents are able to handle bad behavior. But if the behavior becomes too bad, they have to go to another place and they'll most of the time end up in a residential facility. So I worked there and there were like really, really extreme behavioral problems at the facility as per the definition of the facility. So the girls constantly had therapy. Like literally they had access to a therapist every single week, sometimes every single day. And the staff was taught to help them develop self-esteem and we would make them like write mantras about how they're beautiful and how they're good. And that didn't solve their behavioral problems. It really didn't. And I, the thing that's so sad about it is that like, if a girl has been in the system since she was, I don't know, 12, and now she's 16 and she's in this facility and she's had therapy regularly for four years straight, you would expect her behavior to like get better when she comes out of therapy, or you would expect her to show signs of improvement, but the vast majority of the girls didn't. And then when through a series of events, I saw the girls apologizing to each other, or I saw the girls actually like applying themselves to something or care about something, that was when like things actually got better for them. And like the moment that I saw people like able to take responsibility for their actions or able to laugh at themselves when they made a mistake, that was actually soul healing. And that's a really important concept that I, I think that we've really lost in our really vapid self-affirmation idea of how to develop good self-esteem. Wow. Mic drop. <laughs> 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 I think we lose that ability when we're at such a loss with reality, like when we're so out of touch with reality and, and we're absent of connection, we mm -hmm. lose that ability to connect humanly and then regain a sense of self-esteem. Mm -hmm. I also think that like 
a lot of people will mistake the feeling of like self-hatred for the feeling for what actually is guilt. You know, I feel like our society is really hesitant to talk about guilt and shame. And one of the reasons that that is, you know, a phenomenon is because a lot of times shame is something that's kind of fake. Like sometimes people will be mean to other people. So they'll create a social pressure to fit in. And if someone doesn't fit in, then she'll or he will feel like this intense ostracism and it feels like shame but social pressure shame is like more easily conquered by like oh that was that was them that was their problem that was them being mean to me and I can kind of get over it but the shame that a person feels when they actually did something wrong or the guilt that a person feels when they actually like messed up that's something that like like sticks to your soul like black tar like it's really difficult to get over that and I know from like my uncle who was in Vietnam he had PTSD but it was not because mean things happened to him it was because he couldn't deal with the legacy of what he was ordered to do when he was at Vietnam he Mm. was absolutely crippled by guilt it's really important to realize that the only way to redeem yourself from guilt is through like the classic religious process of like redemption. And that's something that a religious framework is really, really good at describing, but a secular framework is really bad at handling. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you just hit the nail on the head. I did want to comment on um, your second episode where you did a survey and you asked people a bunch of questions about like, uh, about how are you feeling right now and sure. what do you think is a problem with uh, like you asked them a bunch of questions and I thought that they were interesting and penetrating questions but um, one thing that I, I thought about mentioning on this podcast is that when I ask my um, <clears throat> my fiance's mom my fiance's mom is from Bangladesh uh, and when I asked her to like rate her mood instead of thinking that a zero was a bad mood and a 10 was a good mood, she thought that a zero was neutral and that a 10 was extreme and that whether it was good or bad, she was rating the intensity of emotion and not the goodness of that emotion. And I haven't really been able to stop thinking about that since that happened, because I think that that um, is a really good example of a, of a, cultural difference that really changes the way people interpret their emotions because it seems as though our society right now wants people to have like a a strong good emotion and if you go around feeling strongly good about yourself then you're you're a healthy happy functional person and this woman who like lived in Bangladesh until she was 30 was operating and living her life under the impression that you want like minimal strength in your emotion and that's the main way that you should like go about your day um so I thought about telling you that because that that's also an interesting frame of reference that we have that expectation yeah wow wow Mm -hmm. it's funny because we want I mean right now it seems like the goal is to be is to have like you said strong good emotions but in reality that's pathological you know like (laughs) having such high self-esteem that's that's narcissism, (laughs) you know, for sure. It speaks to a shift in the consciousness of Gen Z. Jane Marie, we are nearing the end of our time. So thank you so much again for coming on and speaking to us. We really appreciate everything that you've had to say and we take it all to heart because this is all really valuable. So 
thank you so, so much. I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I think that this is a really awesome podcast. Have a good one. You too. That's all for today, folks. As always, thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you next time.